Hey everybody, and welcome to the fourth episode of Safe for Democracy. This is a third part of what's getting to be a very long series about the aftermath of the U.S.-backed coup against Jacobo Arbenz, the democratically elected president of Guatemala in 1954. So if you haven't heard any of the preceding episodes yet, you're probably going to want to go back and start with those. If you're not the kind of person who likes your things in order, what do I know? Try the show out. See if you like it. Before you go in, though, and to remind anybody who hasn't been to the website yet, this is a show about the United States, about the foreign policy disasters of the United States over the course of the 20th century. If that strikes you as unbalanced or unfair, that's fine. I can understand. But I wasn't when I was looking at the education I'd received and the History Channel shows I'd watched and the movies that were coming out. I wasn't seeing any kind of lack of coverage as far as our foreign policy successes were concerned. And if the choice of subject for this podcast is biased or prejudiced, the execution of it is not. Everybody brings their own baggage to a subject, and I'm not dumb enough to try to hide mine. But when I research and write this show, I try to do so in the best historical tradition, the way I was taught. You can comb through the bibliography that I'll leave for every episode on the website if you think that somewhere I've gone astray or missed anything. I respond to the comments, and I'm ready to talk about anything and everything I put in this cast. For everybody who's been following along so far, this is the second to last episode about Guatemala, and hopefully, in about six weeks or so, we'll be moving on to Operation Ajax and Iran, to the first CIA-orchestrated coup plot ever, and the one that has more directly visible consequences for the present day, and even the presidential election. I can't really go much faster than I am with these shows. The burden of research is too large for me to turn them out any quicker and do anything like a good job of it. But I do want to try to put out more content for both your and my sake, and I'm thinking about doing a kind of talk show, like talk hyphen show. And I'll have some of my smarter friends with microphones have a listen to the episodes and take down things that they thought I was wrong about or explained poorly or found interesting, and we'll talk them over. I'll edit out anything too boring and offensive, and we'll stick them up on the site, hopefully for the edification of some of us. The last thing is the bane of podcasters and podcast listeners everywhere, which is the appeal. I'm living as a freelancer in Mexico right now, and even though the cost of life is low, money is always tight. I don't need you to donate, but the better this podcast looks, the easier it is for me to sell my stuff and to keep feeding myself and paying for the internet that gets this show made. So bug the folks you know about the show if you like it. Push it on your parents, rave about it to your liberal friends, and get your conservative ones to hate listen to it. Whenever you rate or review the show on iTunes or Stitcher, it gets more visible to a larger audience, all of which helps me out. And I know it's not on Google Play yet, but Google counts Mexico as some kind of wasteland, and I can't sign up as a podcaster from down here, so we'll all have to wait until I'm home for Thanksgiving for that. I want you to know that when a show is this young, you and I have a much more intimate relationship than you might get with, say, Dan Carlin, and I take all of your comments and Facebook posts and even your individual listens very much to heart. Thanks for being here with me. I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. ¿Para qué sirve entonces la civilización? ¿Para qué sirve la conciencia del hombre? ¿Para qué sirven las Naciones Unidas? But these differences were all forgotten in one unshakable unity of determination to find a way to end war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. Across the world, we're hunting down the killers and we're showing them the definition of American justice. There is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. We have an obligation to be of help where we can to freedom fighters and lovers of freedom and democracy from Afghanistan to Nicaragua. The United States has no intention of determining the precise form of Iraq's new government. That choice belongs to the Iraqi people. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. Well, we're into the third and penultimate episode of The Aftermath now, and I thought that a little longer of a sum-up might be in order, since the events of the first episodes are six weeks distant. 
Part 1 took us through the immediate consequences of the coup against Arbenz in June 1954, the way that the usurper Castillo Armas overturned the agrarian reform that had for the first time since the conquest by the Spanish begun turning the land back over to the Maya population instead of large plantation owners and foreign firms like the United Fruit Company. We followed that line through the 1960s when part of even the Guatemalan army got fed up and mounted a rebellion that morphed into a larger nationwide guerrilla movement. We saw the way that Mendez Montenegro came to the presidency as the candidate of the Revolutionary Party, and how his weak position made him a pawn of the military, and how his regime was even more violent and repressive than those that went before. Then in the last episode, we had a brief reprieve, when liberation theology and a radically new way for Catholicism to look at and look after the poor flowered in Guatemala, and planted social movements like Catholic Action and the cooperatives in the jungles of the state of El Quiche. We saw, too, Guatemalan Mayas standing up and demanding the right to exist as Mayas, with their own culture and not as some backward rump of the white Ladino state. And we saw, in an ominous foreshadowing of what was to come, Colonel Arano Osorio, the butcher of Zacapa, becoming president and turning himself into the butcher of all Guatemala, wiping out almost all of the FARC, the revolutionary armed forces. When we left off... General Quel Laucru Garcia was now in the presidential palace, and his relatively lenient rule was opening some space for Guatemalan civil society. This is the run-up now, the prologue to the final blow and the hammer fall. Let's enjoy the next hour while we can. I'm going to let Carlos Mejia and his very liberation theology, Misa Campesina, play us into the episode proper. of the late 60s and early 70s nearly exterminated the revolutionary armed forces, the FAR, in the countryside. The moment that violence began to let up, new insurgent groups started laying the ground for further opposition. If it's not becoming clear yet, cycles of repression and growth and opposition are endemic to repressive and tyrannical regimes, and it's something that the Truth Commission was aware of. From the report's introduction, quote, the state's reliance on repression negated the possibility for compromise, negotiated settlements, or other means of peacefully addressing political divisions and societal conflict. Alongside its reliance on repression, the state did little to address the fundamental structural inequalities within Guatemalan society, leading to heightened demands for change followed by increased violence. Thus, a vicious circle was created in which social injustice led to protest and subsequently political instability, to which there were always only two responses— repression or military coups, unquote. It would be years yet before the crisis point was reached, but by 1972, on the side of the rebels, things were already beginning again. On the 19th of January of that year, 15 Guatemalans left over from the guerrilla in the mid-1960s came across the Mexican border into the Ixcan, where the jungle settlements we've been talking about were located. At that point, the small band had no name for itself, but it was the germ of what would become one of the four major resistance organizations in the latter part of the conflict, the Guerilla Army of the Poor, or EGP, for Ejército Guerrero de los Pobres. Although its roots were in the FAR, the Revolutionary Armed Forces, the EGP was not a strictly Marxist organization. Although it used class as a way to analyze Guatemalan society, it took into account the racial elements at play and integrated them into its teaching, recruitment, and administration. Like the FAR, the EGP's strategy was to form small, permanent, well-trained military groups, which would operate with the logistical support of civilian communities. But unlike the FAR in the 1960s, which relied to a large amount on city-based urban fronts, the EGP concentrated on the countryside. The EGP looked to rural communities as a source of recruits, but also as the basic building block for the regime they hoped to build after the success of the revolution. They, through talks and classes with communities, would help to organize them and to ensure that their leadership, whether official, like mayors or councils, or unofficial, like the committees that ran the cooperative, would be sympathetic or actively cooperate with the EGP's revolutionary cause. 
Again from the commission report, quote, In the cities and in the lowlands, the EGP's link with the population was mainly through popular organizations. The EGP supported rights-based movements, channeling these efforts towards paralyzing the economic system and trying to elevate their struggles towards revolution. Its plan was that once the guerrillas had advanced to larger battles and liberated territory, its advance toward the city would be combined with mass insurrection that would lead to the overthrow of the government, end quote. The EGP's first contact after crossing the border was with Santa Maria Ceja, the jungle cooperative set up under the leadership of the Spanish priest, Father Luis Curiaran. The guerrillas followed into the town quietly, tired, half-lost, and hungry. They had a brief meeting with Father Luis, who received them warily but cordially. They bought supplies from the cooperative store and moved off into the bush again. The other new guerrilla organization in operation during this period was the Organización del Pueblo en Armas, the ORPA, or Organization of the People in Arms. Rather than splitting the difference between Marxism and indigenism, ORPA's ideology put the indigenous struggle at the center of their conception of the Guatemalan Revolution. From the ORPA pamphlet, What We Know About Our Ancestors, quote, We studied the past to comprehend the greatness of our ancestors, the Maya, in order to understand how the conquest changed everything about the lives of this great people. The Pueblo Natural of Guatemala are the descendants of a great people that created an extraordinary culture. The Maya didn't go hungry like we do. They didn't die of malnutrition. They ate better than the inhabitants of Europe. They were a well-organized and hard-working people, unquote. Likewise, in contrast to the EGP, the guerrilla army of the poor, the ORPA did not try to create links between their armed groups and communities, except to accept new recruits. Instead, they did extensive training in secret and supported themselves first through supply lines into Mexico and then through raids. The ORPA first crossed into Guatemala in 1971, likewise from Mexico, and likewise as a splinter from the former Fuerzas Armadas Revolucionarias, they made their way into San Marcos, the northwesternmost state on the Pacific coast. Their plan was to establish an operational corridor from Mexico along the Costa Sur, the south coast, all the way to Guatemala City by way of Escuintla to its direct south. The coast was prime plantation land and proved to be a rich source of important targets and recruits ready to defend their Mayan bodies and blood against exploitative Ladino masters. Both the ORPA and the EGP, despite their inauspicious beginnings, encountered rapid success in these early years, from 72 to 78. These were years in which they were still operating non-violently, for the most part. In fact, the EGP wouldn't shoot anybody until mid-1975, not a record the state could compete with even at its most peaceful. What they were doing in these years was preparing, training, organizing, recruiting, and educating, spreading their cells and their ideologies across the hills and the villages of rural Guatemala. Like I've mentioned a couple times now, guerrilla warfare by necessity starts small and peacefully. Guerrillas have to build trust with the peasant communities which will sustain them, Trust in their methods, but also trust in their mission. And it appeared that the Guatemalan countryside, primed by centuries of penury, decades of violence, and a few years of activism and organizing along the lines of liberation theology, was very ready to trust in their mission and their message. Captain Juan Fernando Cifuentes, a Guatemalan army officer, wrote a document on counterinsurgency for the military academy in 1982 that read, quote, What the peasants do understand is that they are poor, and that they are so because they live miserably. Their work tasks are exhausting, and the exhausted land yields little. The guerrillas were successful from the beginning, offering the Guatemalan Indians a hope for dignity, something that they had not been offered for more than 400 years of humiliation and misery, end quote. Beatriz Mons writes, drawn in parts from the full commission report, which I don't have, quote, By the end of the 1970s, the guerrillas were able to amass a formidable support base, and when the EGP's first regular military force penetrated southern El Quiche, the state the jungle cooperatives were in, a large percentage of the population was waiting for it. The EGP's political cadres and combatants were increasingly astonished by their overwhelming reception and the speed with which the population organized itself. The intellectual roots of the reception were deep, end quote. Without violence, through the 70s, the EGP, the ORPA, and the newly growing remnants of the FAR managed to quietly turn the countryside into a massive base of operations for their units. But like every story about Guatemala, it had an ominous undertone. Beatriz Mans reports that when the EGP met Father Luis in Santa Maria Ceja, quote, he was apprehensive. He said to them, the army will come. Today in Guatemala, a Central American country about the size of Pennsylvania, more than half the population is pure Mayan. Most still live in the central highlands of the Sierra Madre Mountains and lead a rural life virtually unchanged for centuries. Their culture is unique, a rich heritage of Christian belief and Spanish folklore mixed with fragments of the ancient religion. And among their legends, 
in Mayan scripture, the dreaded deity Cabra Khan proclaims, I am the one who moves the earth. On February 4th, 1976, in the blackness of early morning, the earth did indeed begin to move. For 39 seconds, it ruptured and broke. Just 39 seconds. And the worst natural disaster in the history of Central America had been recorded. If there was one catalyst that fomented national organization among the new Catholicism folks, the workers, the peasantry, and the indigenistas more than anything else, it was the earthquake in February 1976. A 7.5 on the Richter scale centered in the state of Chimaltenango to the immediate west of Guatemala City. It leveled almost every building in the state and laid waste to the capital. Killed more than 25,000 Guatemalans outright before tallying deaths from disease and exposure in the aftermath. Natural disasters have a way of exposing the cracks in governments and regimes. The massive earthquake in Mexico City in 1985 and Hurricane Katrina in 2003 were both instrumental in showing off the inefficiencies of their respective parties and administrations. And in Guatemala in 1976, it became immediately clear that first, the earthquake had disproportionately affected poor Mayas, and second, that the government, despite decades of massive investment in the military and the police, was totally unprepared to lend assistance to its own people. Now, I don't know if you would point to anything too concrete that resulted from the destruction of Katrina, since George Bush was re-elected. But in Mexico, the residents of the capital found that they themselves were the only force to which they could turn for help. And a new party, the PRD, grew up out of the disaster and became a national force. And the disgrace of the earthquake was a part of what broke the ruling pre-party stranglehold on Mexican politics. Much the same kind of thing happened in Guatemala. When assistance from the state was not forthcoming, the people of Guatemala helped themselves. All the indigenous organizations, the labor unions, the peasant collectives, did the work. The rescuers pulling people from the rubble, collecting and distributing supplies, reconnecting families, and providing communication in the aftermath of 76 weren't policemen or soldiers, but ordinary Guatemalans, most of them Maya. Even out in the countryside, where the damage was less severe, it was the peasants who took the lead. The collective in Santa Maria Teca, the one run by Father Luis, sent shipments of grain and supplies out of state, as did other communities in the Ixcan. From Betsy Konofal's book, quote, The earthquake killed 26,000 people and left a million homeless, and the vast majority of both groups were Mayas. It was called the earthquake of the poor and the earthquake of the Indio, and generated widespread discussion of the connections between ethnicity, poverty, and injustice on Maya-language radio stations and in churches, study groups, and organizations. It prompted the Catholic Church to speak out officially in the name of justice and rights, and publicly to champion the rights of the Pueblo Indígena, as one social activist describes it, the earthquake consolidated an indigenous movement. We didn't know at the time that the earthquake, a national tragedy, could bring the unification of so many indígenas. The earthquake and the response to it also gave all those various organizations and affiliations a sense of their own power and interconnectedness. They had by necessity done most of their organizing underground, or quietly, but likewise by necessity, their relief efforts became high-profile. A poor Maya living in a devastated slum in Guatemala City might have known that his neighbor was in a union or that he himself attended a Catholic action study group, but in the rescue and relief operations after the quake, the whole constellation of citizen organizations would have been laid bare to him and to everyone else. What also would have been very clear was that while the pueblo was uniting in its own interests, the tiny white aristocracy that ruled the country and controlled the police and military apparatus was both relatively unaffected by the disaster and showed neither willingness nor ability to help. The disaster and the circumstances around it spurred the formation of a larger, more overarching national organization that would work to coordinate all of the different elements of Guatemalan civil society. That organization was the Comité de Unidad Campesina, the Committee of Peasant Unity, or CUC, and it would become the figurehead for the mass of Guatemalan public opinion and civil aspiration. The CUC was born in the cities, and at the outset, it shared the city's more unionist, Marxist focus on class and economic issues, like wages and services and working conditions. That focus away from lo indígena created early divisions between groups in the cities and Maya organizations that had already developed a program around indigenous reivindication. But the CUC gradually came to knit together both economic and cultural questions, uniting its quest for political justice in the countryside with payments and conditions in the plantations, 
to treatment of Mayas and the freedom to wear traje and use indigenous languages in public and in the schools. Although political activities of all kinds became more overt after the earthquake, and many groups found the courage to protest publicly in the aftermath, the CUC organized for two years in secret before making itself known to the regime and to the population at large. The CUC launched its first public demonstrations on May Day in 1978, flooding the capital with dozens of supporters in a show of force within view of the regime. Past 1978, the CUC developed tightening ties with the EGP, the guerrilla army of the poor, and at the height of its strength towards 1980, the CUC counted 150,000 active members in the cities and in the countryside. But like the commission report pointed out a couple of sections ago, Guatemala in those decades, much like many places before and since, followed a cycle. Repression and corruption provoked organization and protest, which, when they came to the attention of the ruling elite, led to ever greater repression and violence on the part of the regime. The flowering of Guatemalan society in the mid-70s was no exception. It's a sad fact of human history that some of our greatest cultural moments have come before the greatest setbacks. Classical Athens eudaimonia took place under the shadow of the coming Peloponnesian War. Art and music were never as beautiful or sophisticated in Russia as in 1917, before the revolution wiped them away. Weimar Germany in 1933 was a time of incredible tolerance, artistic experimentation, and social acceptance. Guatemala in 1977 and 1978 was no exception. President Laucarud Garcia's relatively permissive regime stayed that way through the end of his term in 1978, but even in the best days, there were ominous signs of what was to come. In the Ixcan, where the cooperatives and collectives that I have sources for were settled, military monitoring and harassment were part of the picture almost from the beginning. There was a large military base at Playa Grande to the east of the Ixcan, and throughout the 70s, the army set up smaller outposts along the roads and amidst the peasant communities. The army made regular visits to the cooperatives, checking in on the priests and members of peasant organizations especially. The collectives were suspect to them because of the whiff of Marxism or socialism that they presented, and liberation theology was seen as a threat by dictatorial regimes throughout Latin America because, really, it was. There is also some indication that the army ramped up its activities in the region once it became aware of nascent guerrilla movements there, like the EGP, the guerrilla army of the poor, and the newly growing elements of the FAR, the Revolutionary Armed Forces. But that was later. Beatriz Mans, the anthropologist, quotes Father Luis of Santa Maria Ceja as saying, quote, Some say the army came because the guerrillas came. In fact, the army came before the guerrillas because they had that ambition, because they realized that these were rich lands. Then the guerrillas came and the military presence increased, leading to the total militarization of the region. Laujurud Garcia, the president of Guatemala at the time, also rolled out what was to become an integral part of the next wave of counterinsurgency, called civil action. The military and its local detachments became the conduit through which flowed all of the programs of the government. If a school was to be built or a hospital inaugurated, it was done through the army. The army held community meetings and classes on the dangers of communism and the guerrilla, aping the guerrillas themselves, who were in turn trying to act like a state within a state. But unlike the guerrillas, who especially during the 70s came in peace and paid for food and taught only the willing, Army meetings were forced, men were forcibly conscripted, and while the army did indeed build some public infrastructure, they also used peasant labor to construct guard posts and airstrips for their visits. Since the 1960s, the army had also been installing military commissioners across the countryside. The commissioners were prominent members of a given community, recruited by the military to be their liaison with the local base or outpost. Some of the commissioners joined willingly, knowing that they could use their position to abuse their neighbors and increase their power in their community. The level of that kind of participation seems to have depended on the level of community cohesion in the given village. The picture I've gotten is that the military commissioners in the Ixcan, where we have our collectives and cooperatives, were often recruited and served unwillingly. There, the army would more or less abduct a couple of villagers and take them to the base at Playa Grande and threaten them, letting them know that if they did not report on their community and, if necessary, inform Anguerillas and collaborators, that the army would kill them and their families. The commissioners were spies and mouthpieces, recruiting aides, and sometimes even customs officers. One witness testimony reproduced in the Truth Commission report said that, quote, If a person had to move from one village to another, he had to have a permit of safe conduct in order to move, like a passport. When he was going to leave, it was stamped. Upon entering the other village, the military commissioner also stamped it, and upon his return as well, end quote. Why do I think that the military was involving itself in the collectives as early as, according to Father Luis, 1970? I think that there were a couple of forces in play. The first was that the cooperatives themselves, along with all of the liberation theology, ideology, and teaching wrapped up in them, were a threat to the status quo in Guatemala. The wealth of the ruling elite depended on export cash crop agriculture, 
which in turn depended on a large and docile force of cheap labor, the Maya peasantry. There may have only been 50,000 peasants in the Ixcan, but they represented an experiment in independent living free of the state. They were peasants who had developed political autonomy without integrating into the repressive structure of the ruling regime, and they had removed themselves from the labor pool, a dangerous example for the masses that the Ladinos needed to keep living as they had for centuries. The second reason had to do with the land itself, and with the quote from Father Luis I read a little while ago. The Ixcan lay in the path of the Franja Transversal del Norte, the Northern Transversal Strip, or FTN. It was an area that Carlos Arano Osorio, the butcher of Zacapo and the president of Guatemala from 1970 to 1974, had marked out officially in 1970 for additional development. Mostly hill and jungle, the FTN was given in parts to peasants and to large international logging interests who would exploit its exotic woods. The land went to the peasants, I think, so that they could sort of terraform it, putting roads and farms in place to make it easier to exploit when the time came. But the surprise to everyone, the government included, was that the land was rich and fertile once the jungle had been cut back. Once it was clear that it was not, in fact, worthless, the government had little interest in recognizing any indigenous right to it and began preparing, maybe even without any grand plan or central direction, to move them off of it. Compounding that interest was the discovery, in the mid-70s, of large mineral and petroleum deposits in the FTN. According to Cultural Survival Quarterly, which is a way more serious magazine than it sounds, the government of Guatemala began selling off huge parts of the FTN to international mining and drilling companies, sometimes land that was currently occupied by peasants. Beatriz Mons writes that when peasants were granted lands through the National Institute for Agrarian Transformation, INTA, they were, quote, sucked into the slow grinding gears of INTA's bureaucracy. The agency would not accept their payments, claiming that the parcel was in someone else's name, or it was still registered as national land, or that the records couldn't be found, or some improbable combination of all three. It became clear that INTA wanted to keep the land situation as uncertain as possible to give the bureaucracy maximum leverage, end quote. Towards the later 1970s, and with the help of the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, or USAID, the government began building a dirt highway across the FTN from Puerto Barrios in the east through Huehuetenango in the west. So many higher-ups in the military, now aware of the value of the land, set up cattle ranches along the planned road that it became known as the Strip of the Generals. Something interesting to note with USAID there and with the stuff that I'm about to get into is that societal repression is not always a planned thing. Obviously, in the case of counterinsurgency, for instance, it's absolutely a coordinated strategy with someone at the head. But that's not always the case. Often a whole society can work towards repression in a way that looks, to us in hindsight through the lens of history, like it had to have been masterminded. But it's really a kind of standalone complex, repression without a given repressor. Like what I said about education earlier, Maya education was perfect for maintaining that population in its historical place. Bare and underfunded in places where there were schools at all, it left its students illiterate and did what it could to abolish their indigenous languages in favor of Spanish. But I doubt that anyone, even in the worst regimes, sat down and decided, well, we've got to keep funding at this particular level because any higher and we might have a rebellion on our hands. I bet those budgets passed through dozens of offices and dozens or hundreds of different officials decided, well, Let's siphon some cash here. This road is more important than a school there, with the end result being an education well calibrated for the repressive system it was a part of. In the same way, what happened with the FTN and the cooperatives can seem like a masterstroke. Get the Indios to colonize, and then we'll steal it out from under them. But in reality, the FTN was first mentioned long before the co-ops. And the agriculture agency, INTA, was formed to try to defuse some of the anger at the abolishing of the agrarian reform after Arbenz. As to why it was an inefficient bureaucracy, I'm sure that the rules it was operating under, even if the employees wanted to be good at their jobs, were made onerous, since no president after Arbenz actually wanted an agrarian reform. And I'm sure nobody at USAID said that they wanted to build a road to oust indigenous peasants from the region. But there's always danger when collaborating with violent anti-democratic regimes, right? It's something you can see in the United States right now. Take immigrants. The Republican Party's base pretty much hates immigrants, legal or otherwise. I'm recording this right after the Republican National Convention, and I think after the first day, the Make America Safe Again Day, that's pretty indisputable at this point. And the only way to deal with that problem, the hating of immigrants, is by passing comprehensive immigration reform, which, because of the nature of the way their base hates immigrants, the GOP cannot do in the Congress. The result of which is that there's a large illegal labor force which is not only willing but forced to work for less than the legal minimum and without benefits or legal protections. 
And who should benefit from that labor but largely conservative planners and businessmen who run the factories and plantations that employ illegal immigrants? So party elites like Donald Trump stir up resentment among people who feel they've lost work to immigrants, while those same party elites, like Trump, employ those immigrants and profit from their labor. It looks like a grand conspiracy of work, and there's certainly an element of intentional deception on the part of party elites, but there's no central committee directing that action. It's just that in our country, the structure of the police, immigration law, and the political parties massively benefits some political and economic elites while exploiting and oppressing the poor, immigrant or not. And it's been going on so long now that it runs on its own. Some folks, like Roger Ailes, who just recently stopped running Fox News, probably have no financial interest in keeping illegals illegal. They just hate them. And Fox News propagates that hate down the line. So that now, without any secret meeting having happened in the 1980s, immigration reform is impossible. Not because planters or factory owners are necessarily actively impeding it, but because huge numbers of Americans hate immigrants. Can they tell you why? Maybe a few have articulate answers, but for the great majority, it's just because. Because at some point, someone on cable or on the radio or in the pulpit told them to, to hate Mexicans or immigrants or blacks or gays. And you might not think of the U.S. as being a repressive society, but that's how one works. And any Guatemalan who's been around in the 1970s, looking at how militarized police forces in the U.S. are facing off against Black Lives Matter protesters in our cities, would recognize what he was seeing. que ha sido tan golpeada por la violencia y que ha tenido tantos mártires. Para nosotros la muerte de Monsignor Gerardi es el confirmarnos en el camino de la paz, de la lucha por la justicia. With all the actors involved in liberation theology from the very beginning, and tensions because of protests and national organizations mounting through the 1970s, it was only a matter of time before the Catholic Church itself became a target for the government. The state began by officially deporting priests and nuns that it viewed as particularly troublesome, but by 1975, it took things a step further. Father Luis of Santa Maria Zeca came under suspicion by the army, in all likelihood just because of his day-to-day -day activities. The military harassed him, searching his house at night, taking him out to the base at Playa Grande, and interrogating him repeatedly, until he felt he had to leave or be killed, and he made his way out of Guatemala, leaving his parishioners and his cooperative without a pastor. Things got worse from there. If you remember from earlier, Father William Woods was the Marinol missionary in charge of the Ixcan Grande Cooperative, the one who increased invitations and immigration, and who insisted on shared property there. Beatriz Mons reports that the Marinol magazine described the man as someone whose, quote, ideas were as big as his heart, unquote. He was a large guy, a brave guy, a guy not afraid to implement new ideas in the cooperative and unafraid of standing up to the military when they came around. He had also taught himself to fly, and he used the cooperative's small single-engine plane to run cardamom shipments to the city and bring back supplies and trade goods. At a time when the military was inserting itself and its planes into the economic life of the cooperatives, it might have been that last thing, his piloting and the independence it gave him in his cooperative, that made him an especial target. On the 20th of November 1976, William Woods was flying with four others back from Guatemala City to the Ixcan. John Gawker was working on a housing project, Selwyn Puig was a photojournalist, and, Ricardo Faya notes, a mother of four. Anne Kernt was working for the Direct Relief Foundation, and Michael Diocato was a Japanese-American doctor visiting the region. Father Woods was due for Mass in Pueblo Nuevo in the Ixcan Grande Cooperative later that day, and when he did not arrive as scheduled, his parishioners called first to the municipal center at Xalbal, and later to the Marinol House in Guatemala City. No one in either place knew where he was. Only the following day did news leak out that Woods' plane had impacted a mountain range near the town of Cozal, killing all aboard. Exactly how the army precipitated the crash is lost to history and internal purges, but nowhere in any source is there any doubt about the fault. There were rumors soon afterwards that soldiers had shot the plane down. More substantiated was that the army secured the crash site and destroyed or confiscated all of the evidence they found there. And one Colonel Castillo, who was the cooperative coordinator for the army, and who was later purged for seeming too sympathetic with the peasants, got drunk in 1978 and repeated to several witnesses, quote, I am not guilty, but other colonels planned the priest's death, unquote. 
The army also harassed Father Karl Stetter, William Woods' replacement, first trying to trap him. Soldiers dressed as guerrillas and visited Stetter to ask him if he would use the cooperative's new plane to transport arms. He refused the first time and went straight to the barracks at Playa Grande. I'm returning, he said, quote, I went there to let off steam. I told them I'm not to be messed around with or to be involved in politics, unquote. They tried the same ploy again a few months later with the same result. When at a community meeting in December 1978, the community rejected a boarding school the army was proposing to build in favor of a parochial school they were already constructing, the man in charge, the same Colonel Castillo, became incensed, and the army captured and deported Father Stetter days later. According to Ricardo Faya, quote, The local population saw how the army, via Colonel Castillo and the Guatemalan Air Force, occupied the priests' positions in the cooperatives after they were gone. They made landing strips to take out coffee and cardamom, but the army's real intention, according to the witnesses, was twofold, to gain the hearts and minds of the population and to implant the army in the area, end quote. In 1980, Father Jose Maria Gran, of the same Sacred Heart Order as Father Luis, was ambushed and killed by the army on his way between two cooperative centers. From 1978, but especially after 1980, the military began targeting catechists for abductions and killings as well. According to Beatriz Mons, across Guatemala, quote, 91 priests and 78 nuns were forced to leave the country due to death threats. Eight places of religious training were closed. Two parish buildings and two religious houses were machine-gunned. 30 centers of training for catechists and Christian leaders were closed. 70 parishes were left without priests. Two church-sponsored radio stations were closed. Eight Catholic schools were subject to investigation and police control, and all meetings involving evangelization were eventually prohibited." End quote. The Truth Commission report records that 1,169 religious were disappeared, tortured, or murdered. 921 catechists, 17 priests, 27 religious workers, 5 female religious, and 193 killed as parishioners. All of that might seem more like ominous rumblings, and it was, but it wouldn't have seemed like it at the time. Most of these killings still lay, in the timeline of this podcast, in the future, and even those that were current, like Father Wood's, weren't seen in the same foreboding way as they are now. Remember that at the time, most of the population was rural and that there were no sources of uncensored, reliable national news. The word spread as rumor on foot from village to village. And it was rumor. We can read the anthropologists and historians now and see it laid out. But the official story in Woods' case was a crash. In others, they were unexplained disappearances or blamed on the rebels. And while in hindsight it seems like a whirlwind, at the time it was happening in days and weeks, minutes and hours, and in walking terms to any given Guatemalan, far away. By 1980, it was getting harder to ignore, and in that year, Juan Gerardi, the bishop of El Quiche State and later head of the Catholic Truth Commission, closed down the El Quiche Diocese. The Catholic Commission report said that by that time, quote, even glowing close to a chapel had the imminent danger of being labeled a communist and later assassinated, unquote. That level of widespread fear would come soon for more than just the clergy. The violence also ramped up towards the end of the 1970s because of increased rebel activity. Unfortunately, the guerrillas couldn't pass all of their time in teaching and training. Each of the rebel organization's strategies counted on the population rising up against the government, and for that to happen, they first had to attack the government. The first high-profile rebel strike was against Luis Arenas, a plantation owner who had property in the Ixcan. Beatriz Mann's book makes clear that he was up to more than planting. Quote, He first made a name for himself during the 1954 CIA-backed coup that overthrew the Arbenz government after which he was given La Perla, a large hacienda or finca in the Ixcan. During the repressive military government of Carlos Arana Osorio, he was given charge of development in the state of El Petén. He had a reputation for cheating and mistreating Indians, and reportedly employed deception, forced indebtedness, and virtually any pretext or intimidation to recruit a large labor force. The isolation of the area made the abuse of the Mayan workforce, with all its racist overtones, more agonizing and more ruthless than plantation work elsewhere in the country, end quote. He was proud enough of his methods and his reputation to give himself the nickname the Tiger of Ixcan. On the 7th of June, 1975, several guerrillas snuck into Arenas' finca and put themselves into a pay line with the other peasant workers. Once they'd reached the front, where Luis Arenas and an overseer were passing out wages from a shack, 
They shouted for the overseer and the workers to lay on the ground. They identified themselves as members of the guerrilla army of the poor, condemned Luis Arenas as an enemy of the people, and shot him six times, in the forehead and in the chest. It was the first public act of the EGP, and for Mons again now, quote, as someone from Santa Maria Tseca stated, the army had been harassing them ever since they arrived in the rainforest. But after the assassination of the Tiger of Ixcan, the army began a far uglier process. The rustled downwards towards the settlements. Over the next six months, 35 cooperative members from the Ixcan were tortured, killed, or disappeared. End quote. The Guatemalan Truth Commission report defines five different acts of violence committed by the guerrillas, which, apart from organizing and educating, cover most of their activities during this period. I'm going to talk about some of them now and some of them a little later when they're more relevant. The first was the ajusticiamiento, or judgment, used to refer to executions of people through a process of revolutionary justice, sometimes with a public trial that called on witnesses from a given community, sometimes with what was more like a public announcement, a revolutionary tribunal that tried the accused before the people, but without their input at the time and without an opportunity for the accused to mount a defense. And sometimes, as in the case of Luis Arenas, the Tiger of Ixcan, without any pretense of a trial. Though in his case, and I imagine in most cases, the guerrillas were well convinced of guilt and innocence. The commission report states that the majority of acts carried out by the guerrillas were ajusticiamientos, and it reports that it knows that because, quote, these organizations provided important documents to the CEH, including their war reports, in which they admitted responsibility for many acts, thereby demonstrating their commitment to fulfilling the commission's mandate, unquote. Two things to draw from that. The first is that the guerrillas were well-structured, and as the report later points out, most or all justiciamientos were carried out after deliberation and permission was given by high command. Nobody was out assassinating willy-nilly. And second, unlike the army's killings, which come out in the report through witnesses and Amnesty International reports, the guerrillas in 1996 were just as confident about what they'd done as in 1976. Take that how you will. The CEH, or at least my English version of the CEH, doesn't give its estimate for the total number of ajusticiamientos, or any of the other acts of violence by the guerrillas, but it does state that between all of the acts and the human rights violations, which is what it calls all the instances of killings, kidnappings, disappearances, and rapes by the state, all of the rebels together committed somewhat less than 3% of all violations. Three isn't good, even if you're of the opinion that a good chunk of what the rebels were doing was on the side of the angels but three is a hell of a lot better than 97. Next is kidnapping, which the rebels started up with likewise in the mid-1970s. The CEH, the commission report, says that the FAR, the rebel armed forces, or revolutionary armed forces, defined kidnapping for financial gain as a preferred tactic. And it seems like the EGP and the ORPA, the guerrilla army of the poor, and the organization of the people in arms, acted along similar lines. From some of the FAR's own documents, quote, our enemies are the oligarchy and Yankee imperialism, and all of its participating agents. We will take advantage of any opportunity we have to tear away from our enemies some of what they have stolen, whether by taxes, in cash, or in kind, in the city or in the country, voluntarily or under pressure, as is the case of kidnappings." End quote. The kidnappings often serve multiple purposes. Not just ransom cash to keep their operations in the black, prisoner exchanges, and political demands as well. Here are a couple of testimonies from the rebels' own documents reproduced in the CEH report. Quote, On December 31, 1977, the government advisor and ex-cabinet minister Roberto Herrera Ibargen was kidnapped. To free the kidnapped man, the guerrilla organization asked for money for ransom, the publication of a communique in the press, and the release of a combatant from the organization that was in the army's hands. On October 7, 1979, members of the EGP kidnapped Jorge Raul Garcia Granados, as a way of impacting the economic elites. He was freed when the family met the conditions demanded by the guerrilla organization. In the first days of June 1980, in the capital city, the businessman, Hastet Biagran, was captured. The prisoner was released after a corresponding war tax was paid. The next thing listed in the CEH was, quote, attacks on public property, private property, and looting, unquote. The attacks on private property and looting were pretty straightforward to understand. The guerrillas picked up finqueros or businesses that they felt were particularly in league with the state or responsible for repression, and they robbed them for cash. The attacks on public property or sabotage were a little more nuanced. From an internal FAR document reproduced in the commission report, quote, The goal of sabotage as a form of struggle is to continually deepen and expand the advance and development of the revolutionary popular war. 
interrupting free movement along highways, ruining the enemy's communication, destroying bridges, paralyzing factories and mills, are all activities that our compañeros should engage in. Strikes against the enemy should include a full campaign of sabotage and harassment. These strikes will focus on the destruction of all possible types of lines, electricity, telephones, telegraphs, etc. Sabotage of all the roads, mainly those with the most traffic and importance, placing obstacles, rocks, sticks, burned trailers. One shouldn't think of this as an anarchic or desperate measure. It is the appropriate response we need to put a stop to the main activities of the enemies of the people in order to end their actions and ultimately to inflict upon them a great political military defeat." End quote. What's interesting about that excerpt beyond its bare text is that it's an internal document for internal consumption, a kind of how-to guerrilla booklet or pamphlet. It speaks to both the limited resources of the rebels, rocks and sticks, and to the fact that in a country where development was tirelessly targeted towards the rich, that sabotaging the elements of that development, like telephones and highways, would at least do more damage to the rich than to the poor who had little or no opportunity to use them. The last thing I want to mention at this point is, quote, torture and cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment, unquote. I bring it up because the CEH brings it up, and to be clear that the only instances of torture or inhumane treatment the CEH could find belonged to one particular commander in the EGP between 81 and 82, when he was then either killed by the army or tried and executed by the EGP for what he'd been up to. My version of the CEH has only three witness accounts of this, one in which a victim was hung but not killed, one in which they beat the victim's family, and one in which they tortured and killed the victim. All three were military commissioners and might have, under another commander, been subject to either interrogations or ajusticiamientos, but the scarcity of atrocities committed by the rebels brings us back to something I've mentioned several times already, that a guerrilla force always works to win over the population they're fighting in the midst of. In that context, torture doesn't pay and neither do absolutely arbitrary killings. Partly because of the rebels, partly because of civil organization and the earthquake, things in the late 70s were quickly coming to a head. Uh, one of the more provocative statements of yours that I've read is that if the standards apply to the Nuremberg trials were applied, then every post-World War II American president would have been hanged as a war criminal. Take us briefly through the war crimes committed by each president. <laughs> a couple of times, but with the, in the Carter years, when uh, uh, Carter was backing Somoza uh, and the, his National Guard and uh, openly and with direct military and diplomatic support at a time when they were, had killed about 40,000 people in the, uh, last, in the terror of the last days of their regime. Uh, uh, going on, again, that's a sample. Going on to the Reagan years, it's not even a question. The uh, in fact, the U.S. was condemned by the World Court during the Reagan years for the for its unlawful use of force in the meaning aggression in the in uh, Nicaragua in Central America alone. Uh, maybe 200,000 people or so were slaughtered in a very brutal fashion uh, by U.S.-run programs. The event that all the books I've read uses the starting point for the period in Guatemalan history that came to be known as La Violencia took place in a little town in the state of Alta Verapaz known as Panzos. Many of the people living in the communities around Panzos had, like the villagers in the Ixcan, acquired their land through the INTA, the National Institute for Agrarian Transformation. And like the settlers of the Ixcan, the largely Maya residents of those communities were, by the late 1970s, finding out that the INTA was then refusing to recognize their titles and was telling them that their lands legally now belonged to one or another of several wealthy finqueros that lived in the district. On May 28, 1978, a large group of Maya campesinos, reportedly several hundred, gathered in front of the municipal headquarters in Panzos to present a document to the mayor explaining their predicament and protest the seizure of their lands. The army had had advanced warning of the protest, and at a critical moment, soldiers holding a line in front of the municipal building opened fire on the crowd killing at least 100 of the protesters and wounding 300 more. According to Betsy Konefall, quote, The violence did not end in the plaza. Campesinos fleeing into the hills and the river were pursued by army helicopters, gunned down as they tried to escape the mayhem, unquote. It was a sign to the now massive opposition that ever more fervent activity was necessary, and an indication from the military of the kind of response that activity could now expect. On the 1st of July, 1978, Fernando Romeo Lucas Garcia, became the next president of Guatemala in an election that was reportedly even more poorly rigged than the last one against Jose Efrain Griezmann, 
Lucas Garcia was not of a mind to be as tolerant of internal opposition as Laucarud had been. In October of 1978, two new death squads, the secret anti-communist army and the Escuadrón de la Muerte, began operating, murdering peasants, trade unionists, cooperative members, student activists, university staff, judiciary members, church leaders, and members of left or left-of-center political parties. Amnesty International wrote in its report, Guatemala, a government program of political murder, that more than 8,195 people were killed or disappeared from 1978 to 1980. The Guatemalan Truth Commission report writes that, quote, on January 25, 1979, the politician and congressman Alberto Fuentes Mor was executed in the capital in an operation involving a vehicle and two motorcycles. On March 22nd, the politician Manuel Colom Argueta was also executed. Fuentes Mor was killed just days after registering the Social Democratic Party, and Colom Argueta was killed a week after registering the political party Frente Unido de la Revolución, the United Revolutionary Front. The goal of these acts was to limit political options and increase the level of polarization. Both political movements disappeared after the execution of their leaders, end quote. Lucas Garcia made efforts to increase and improve the armament of the Guatemalan military. And although by that point the Carter administration in the United States had imposed a partial freeze on military aid to the country, it continued to deliver arms owed through past agreements. Likewise, Lucas Garcia was able to purchase arms through Belgium, Israel, South Korea, and France. All of which is to say that even the Carter administration didn't give a shit about weapons making their way to Guatemala. All of those countries were at the time purchasers of U.S. weapons or recipients of U.S. military aid, and all of them were allies over which we had massive influence. If you want to look at the U.S. actually stopping the movement of goods, look at Cuba. If the Carter administration had had serious intentions of blocking weapons from Guatemala and the Lucas Garcia regime, the weapons would not have got there. Why U.S. support continued even after it was politically touchy to do so openly is clear from the opinions expressed in the State Department documents from the National Security Archive briefing books. The Defense Intelligence Agency and State co-authored a cable that described some EGP activities. Quote, One of the most bizarre incidents was the April 1979 EGP takeover of the town of San Miguel in central El Quiche, where townspeople were coerced into attending propaganda lectures in the town's central plaza. Unquote. Their opinion of the rebels in this document is pretty clear that townspeople were coerced, whereas all witness accounts from the CEH report note that they were always invited, usually very cordially. And they refer to them as propaganda lectures, as opposed to what? The level-headed, national, anti-communist, friendly-type education campaign? And most tellingly, that the incident was bizarre. If the state had any understanding of the Guatemalan rebels in particular, or guerrillas in general, they'd know that education of the population is step absolutely number one not killing or kidnapping or disappearing, which were the first line of defense of the government they were determined to continue arming. Another document from the archive is a secret memorandum from the Department of State, in which an official from State's Bureau of Human Rights and Humanitarian Affairs reflected on a recent meeting between Lucas Garcia, the president of Guatemala, and the U.S. General Vernon Walters, who was there to consult with Garcia. He laid out the U.S. thinking pretty clearly. Quote, the point is the rather obvious one that only in time will we and the Guatemalans know whether President Lucas is correct in his conviction that repression will work once again in Guatemala. If he is right and the policy of repression is succeeding and will result in the extermination of the guerrillas, their supporters, and their sympathizers, there is no need for the U.S. to implicate itself by supplying the government of Guatemala with security assistance. We did not provide such assistance to Argentina in waging its dirty war against the guerrillas in that country. Now that that war has been concluded, we are endeavoring to establish more normal relations with Argentina. Having failed, we ought to distance ourselves from the government of Guatemala and not involve ourselves in Guatemala's dirty war. If the repression does work, we can, in the aftermath, work to restore normal relations with the successors to Lucas Garcia. At such time as the failure of repression to contain and eradicate the guerrilla threat becomes evident, Guatemala will then be ripe for a successful U.S. diplomatic initiative. The government of Guatemala, under internal pressure, will have no choice but to seek political and military assistance from the U.S. more or less on our terms." End quote. The takeaway here is that General Waters tried, in a personal meeting with Lucas Garcia, to convince the president not that repression was wrong, but that it wouldn't work. That he was wrong both ways is beside the point. At this juncture, the U.S. could have actually stopped arms shipments to Guatemala, but it did not. It could have put real political or military pressure on Guatemala say by supporting Belize in their ongoing border dispute, but it did not. Instead, the sage advice of this functionary was to wait and see, 
And if a hundred thousand dead Indians do the job, great. If they don't, well, then we'll be ready to deal. When you study international relations in college, it's incredibly exciting until you find out that nearly none of the theory matters, and that so-called realism or real politique usually rules the day. But when you begin studying it in context, the all the more depressing fact is that although the hard-nosed negotiators and diplomats would refer to themselves as realists, concerned only with balances of power and force and the barest facts, divorced from emotion, they're nearly always operating based on some reality that you cannot recognize. We're getting the dictatorial, murderous government of a tiny country like Guatemala to toe the American party line in a nearly imaginary Central American struggle between global communism and glorious capitalism is worth the torture, disappearance, or murder of hundreds of thousands of people. But that's just me. The embajador nos dijo, Spartan completamente nos dijo, mirad, si algún día os veis en peligro, mirad, en cualquier momento vais a la embajada y dijo, yo creo, creo que la embajada todavía la respetará. Los campesinos deciden ocupar la embajada de España porque nadie se ha hecho eco de sus quejas. Amanece aquel 31 de enero de 1980. El despacho del embajador en el segundo piso de la embajada permanece en calma. Pocas horas después, aquellas ventanas centrarían la atención del mundo entero. There were maybe two other events that marked a definitive break between the way things had been in the 70s and the way they would be in the 80s both in the first two months in the first year of the decade. On January 31st, 1981, a group of protesters from El Quiche came to Guatemala City to voice their opposition to kidnappings and killings that had taken place in that province. They staged a march which, either by design or by necessity, became an occupation of the Spanish embassy. When Guatemalan security forces surrounded the embassy compound, the protesters refused to come out and the embassy staff refused to turn them out or to let the Guatemalan police in. Violating one of the oldest and most respected precepts of international law, the Guatemalan security forces stormed the embassy, and in the resulting confusion fired on the protesters over the shouted objections of the Spanish ambassador. Something, either a government bomb or a protester's improvised Molotov cocktail, started a fire which destroyed the embassy, killing 37 protesters and a majority of the Spaniards inside. The ambassador and one protester survived. Both were taken to a city hospital. The ambassador made his way home, and Spain severed its diplomatic ties with Guatemala. The protester was abducted from the hospital, tortured, and dumped dead in the street the next day. The international reaction was unfavorable, to say the least, but at no point even after the embassy fired did Guatemala have trouble importing arms, counterinsurgency manuals, or advisors. The United States kept its embassy open, well aware that no protester would try to take refuge there. The second thing was a work stoppage organized by the CUC, the Committee for Campesino Unity held in February 1980. Taking place during the harvest, the general strike started in the plantations on the coast, but spread to the cities and became the largest demonstration of its kind in all of Guatemala's history up to the present day. And it brought almost all industry in the country to a halt. The explicit goal of the stoppage was a raise in the rural minimum wage from $1.10 to $5 a day, and the finqueros finally stopped the action by compromising at $3.20. That ended the strike, but in its wake, both the CUC and the regime knew that more and more determined action would be on the horizon, which led to another stronger wave of kidnappings and killings of unionists and organizers, and the CUC was forced to take its activities underground. The CEH reports that the state greatly increased its incidence of forced disappearances after 1979, and that uptick was without doubt related to the CUC, the embassy, Pansos, and the work stoppage. The president, Lucas Garcia, felt his regime to be in trouble, and violence became ever more generalized as a result. From the commission report, quote, The arbitrary execution of well-known professionals not involved in military acts was another mode of generalizing terror. In 1980, at the University of San Carlos, staff that had never participated in politics, either inside or outside an academic setting, were assassinated. One example was Luis Felipe Mendizabal, the director of the Office of the Registrar. Quoting from a witness now, no one has been able to understand why they killed them, but there was a goal, terror in and of itself as a form of counterinsurgency. Many people must have said, if they'd kill Felipe, who wouldn't they be willing to kill? And that created the terror that still exists in Guatemala. End quote. The violence ticks steadily upwards into 1981, a year in which Amnesty International estimates that the forces of the government put more than 9,000 people to death. The repression was so wanton 
so widespread and ill-considered that even the Guatemalan military began to resist Lucas Garcia's directives. Seeing them as so harsh as to be counterproductive, alienating and radicalizing the peasants against the regime. Lucas Garcia may have disgusted even the military apparatus that engaged in its own excesses in the 1960s, but not so the United States. Carter's administration had made token efforts to isolate the Guatemalan regime, but by 1980, Carter was no longer president. Ronald Reagan, and God love you if you love him, was no fan of quote-unquote communists, which made him a fan of the Guatemalan regime. He authorized the sale of nine Bell helicopters to the Guatemalan army, $10 million in arms sales, and $3 million in vehicles with the express intent of assisting the Guatemalans in counterinsurgency. But in late 1981, after a series of increasingly brutal sweeps by the army through the countryside, things suddenly began to look up. The Sandinista rebels in Nicaragua had taken Managua and with it the country, inspiring hopes of similar success in the Guatemalan revolutionaries. After all of the groundwork lead in the 1970s, the EGP, the Guerrilla Army of the Poor, the FAR, the Revolutionary Armed Forces, and the ORPA, the Organization of the People in Arms, were finding it ever easier to recruit and obtain assistance from among the rural population, now fully awake to the government's plans for them. And in November in the Ixcan, and a little earlier or later in other parts of the country, the troops withdrew, either to their large bases or even further back towards the capital. From Ricardo Faya's book, quote, During the months that the army was absent, there was a kind of popular insurrection in Ixcan. The inhabitants sabotaged the landing strips to obstruct the return of soldiers. They raised flags, burned down the military barracks, and prepared their self-defense strategies. This insurrection, however, left the army with little doubt that the only way of controlling the insurgency was by massively killing the population." End quote. Apart from their elation and optimism at the success of the rebels in Nicaragua, the guerrillas in Guatemala were making their own strides. The FAR, the EGP, and the ORPA, the guerrilla army of the poor, the revolutionary armed forces, and the organization of the people in arms had been holding talks together in Cuba, and in early 1982, they formed the National Guatemalan Revolutionary Union, the URNG, to coordinate their efforts across Guatemala. At that point, the EGP was operating or had gained control of large parts of Huehuetenango and El Quiche states in the northwest, expanding down from the Mexican border through the Ixcan and the territory of the cooperatives. The ORPA had secured their corridor for Mexico through San Marcos and along the southern Pacific coast, throughout the lands of the large planters and finqueros. And the FAR had established itself throughout the forest at Petén, the large northern branch of Guatemala that stands up into Mexico like a peninsula. While they all had differing ideologies and plans of action, the coordination they reached in early 1982 allowed them to mount a countrywide offensive, taking over much of the territory abandoned by the army after its retreat in late 1981. Unfortunately for all of them, and especially for the peasants of the countryside, the military had pulled back only in part because of the rebel successes. In the months between November 1981 and March of 1982, they were organizing and gearing up for the next stage of Lucas Garcia's counterinsurgency, Operación Ceniza, or Operation Ashes. The first stage of scorched earth, the strategy that would dominate in the countryside for years to come. All right, folks, it's taken three hours and quite a few weeks, but here we are now, right on the cusp of the violence. I started working on the aftermath, on the set of four shows of which this is the third, while I was still doing research about the coup. I knew that I wanted to explore, somehow, the consequences of the overthrow of Arbenz. But I was no expert on the history of Guatemala, and I didn't even have the faintest idea of where to start. So I read one, two, five, seven books, dozens of articles. And what should have been obvious before I began finally dawned on me, that this wouldn't fit in one episode, and that no matter how many I did, it would never be enough. I'd never be able to lay down enough words or enough music to capture the magnitude of the tragedy that was taking place. Jorge Luis Borges has a very short story about a country whose lore of and skill in geography was so great that the Cartographers Guild struck a map of the empire that was one-to-one -one in scale and that laid over the whole of it. The coup felt like something I could cover in broader strokes. An event here, a date there, and in 90 minutes or so you have a good map, a picture that looks something like what went on. But the aftermath of it just kept growing. The people it consumed and the decades that it devoured out of Guatemala's history, and it became so fine-grained, an insanity that murdered hundreds of thousands of people one by one, that it began to feel like it'd have to make a Borges podcast, cataloging every deeply personal catastrophe until it became totally worthless as a piece of history-making. So I had to cut it short, to a length that you might well feel is nowhere near short enough. We've got maybe two hours left now. 
I wrote the majority of these shows weeks ago, but the script ends halfway through the next episode, and even I don't know where it will finish. What I want to impress on you is that when something like what happened to Arbenz happens, there's no neat endpoint at which we get to say, that's not our fault or our responsibility anymore. No clear-cut date when we can point to geopolitical realities and write the thing off, wash our hands, wipe the slate clean. When we muster the power of the United States and put our finger on the scale, the repercussions echo down through the decades. And what goes on in Guatemala in the next show will wreck its society so thoroughly that even the conquest by the Spanish is minor in comparison. The only thing we can do now is face it and refuse to look away. I hope you'll show up and remember it with me. Safe for Democracy is written, edited, and produced by me, Jonathan Coombs. Special credit goes to Paradise and Ashes, For Every India Who Falls, Massacres in the Jungle, and the Truth Commission Report, which have been the backbone of this show. You can find those and all the other sources for this episode in the bibliography on the website, safefordemocracy.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher and at safefordemocracy.com if you want to get it straight from the source. And if you want to help me out and help to ensure that this show keeps getting made, share it with a friend. Read it on whatever service you use. If you want to go the absolutely extra mile, I'll have a PayPal donate button on the site. That's all we have for now. Next time, massacre, genocide, a murderous evangelical named Rios Mont in the presidential palace, and a very faint light at the end of a very long tunnel. Until then, I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect.